Hello, people of the world, and welcome to today's episode of the Unity Project podcast. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, the Unity Project podcast is one about the relationships that we have with our bodies. Today, I got to interview a new dear friend of mine named Brian Sonia Wallace. Brian does one of the most unique things I have ever heard of. He's a he is the poet laureate right now of West Hollywood. And my goodness, if you haven't heard of him, definitely check out his work. It is incredible. And his story is so unique because in, in 2012, he set up a typewriter on the street with a sign that said Poetry Store, and he accidentally started his business Red Poet. Over 5,000 poems later, his book of essays, The Poetry of Strangers, profiles the communities he's written for across America and the desperate desire to be listened to and heard. Some of his experts have been published in The Guardian and Rolling Stone, and he's been the official writer in residence for unlikely clients from Amtrak to the Mall of America. He now works with teams of poets to bring poetry to events, provide educational workshops, and advocate for the arts more broadly. Rent Poet has been featured on NPR's How I Built This and continues to bring typewriter poetry to events. As an educator and advocate, he is an instructor at the UCLA Extension Writing Program and the manager of education for Get Lit, Words Ignite, supporting over 100 schools and thousands of students in writing their own poetry. Now, if all that information alone didn't get you interested in Brian, uh, I don't know what's wrong with you. Also, no offense, but come on. <laughs> he was so much fun to talk to. Such a, just such an inspirational person that I, I don't know. After our conversation, I just felt like I wanted to go do more, write more, try more, just experience things. And that was a really special feeling. Getting to talk with Brian about his relationship with his body was a really special experience. We talked a bit about his time doing theater and bodybuilding and how things like that were what really prompted his realization of his relationship with his body. Uh, Brian has a pretty cool story. He grew up with hippie parents, which I find so exciting and so different from my experience growing up and so I feel like I learned so much. I think my favorite part of this interview was when he talked about what he learned being on the streets with his typewriter and writing for so many strangers and he says that he learned that people at the end of the day they just really want to be heard and I think that that is so incredible that he offered that space for them and that we get to learn through his stories about what that means and learn through that about what it means to be a human and what it means to want connection and want to be known and ah so many good things just i could talk for a while but check out the interview i hope you enjoy How is it going over there? Hi, it's going well. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Where Where are you at right now? I am in West Hollywood, California, sitting in my room looking out at the uh, palm tree outside my window. 
Oh my gosh. Okay, because I was reading a lot of your work and you're all over the place traveling and whatnot, which we'll definitely get into, but West Hollywood, I lived in North Hollywood for a while and West Hollywood is, there's a lot going on over there, man. Oh man, it is both like very cool to be in the middle of a lot of things and also stressful. Oh, I can imagine. So have you, have you always been in West Hollywood in your time in California? No, so I, I grew up in Culver City, um, which is now, you know, super trendy Silicon Beach, but at the time was sort of a <laughs> sleepy retirement community, um, and then lived for uh, most of my adult life in LA, kind of near downtown, and then right now I'm, I'm serving as the Poet Laureate of West Hollywood, so I'm, I'm living here and working here and kind of trying to understand and encapsulate and, uh, I don't know, embody this city. Yeah. That's awesome. So for those for those listening, Brian Sonia Wallace is an incredible poet. And you what were, what did you say you're the West Hollywood Poet Laureate? That's right, right now through October of 2023. Wow. So what exactly does that mean? <laughs> it's one of it's one of those funny kind of nebulous terms where you're like, "Oh, that sounds impressive. What do you do?" Um and it's largely usually an honorary role. A lot of cities, counties and states will have them. There was a big boom in the 70s and then another big boom like now and especially after um the youth poet laureate for the country amanda gorman spoke at biden's inauguration everyone's like clamoring to create poet laureate roles and really they're sort of like the the ambassador or the representative for poetry for a city and what they do can really vary so in west hollywood i have a couple of events that i organize there's uh it's national poetry month right now in april so there's banners all up and down santa monica boulevard and i help to curate the poets who we feature on those banners um and i i write a couple of poems for the city every year i actually it was very exciting i had my first poem censored this year um wow. which feels feels like a milestone as a, as a writer um yeah but i do a, a poem for city council and a poem for uh, everybody for the holidays um and then really it's kind of up to the poet so i have a group called pride poets and we bring LGBTQ plus poets on typewriters out to uh, the Pride Parade every year and do lots of activities around that, writing custom poems for the public based around their stories. Um, and I've also been curating an open mic at a gay bar, which has been a lot of fun and just really cool to take this kind of space that's traditionally, you know, sort of dancing and debauchery and think about it as a space for self-expression and think about it as a salon and a place where people can kind of bring other aspects of themselves. Oh, yeah. That's so that's a, that's such... a long answer, but that's, that's what's been going on. <laughs> well, that, that is a perfect answer. That is so cool. I am now just desperate to get out to West Hollywood for Pride this year to see all this happen. That's so awesome. Man, uh, Brian, do you, do you mind giving the listeners here a little brief background about uh, your rent poet story kind of how that happened sure um yeah so i have a an alias an alter ego um a company name a uh secret identity i that's not secret i guess um as rent poet r-e-n-t poet um which came out of a challenge that i took in 2014 to pay my rent here in la using only poetry and I did that by bringing a typewriter, a manual typewriter, out onto the street and writing 
poems for anyone who asked for one based on whatever they asked for. And um, my background was really in like ensemble theater and physical theater, and I'd done a lot of site-specific and immersive work. And this was sort of like, I, I thought about it as a one-person performance, and I really was thinking that I would do it for a month, and then that would be it. Um, but at the end of that month, I started getting all of these invitations to do private parties, to do company parties, to do, you know, weddings and bat mitzvahs and birthdays. And so it became this um, basically event entertainment business, which I think is, is really ironic in part because um, even in the name Rent Poet, I was kind of riffing off of the idea of Rent Boy, that what you're doing if you're sort of selling intimacy on the street is uh is just that you're selling you're selling intimacy you know um yeah. but all of the the sort of corporate people heard it as rent a poet and so it's more like rent a fence than rent boy and yeah. <laughs> it's wound up having this sort of commercial commercially successful life which i didn't uh expect from this weird performance art project that i really thought about as a like a critique of you know capitalism and gentrification and and oh, high yeah. rents Oh, wow. That is such an incredible story. I just, I have for the past couple hours just been like taking in as much as I can of your work and learning. I watched the, the video that you had on your website about your experience doing this and just watching you there. It just seems like you're made for it. Like I love, I know you talked about how it, you feel like, or at least at the beginning you talked about uh, how you felt like you were trying to send like a character out to do it because it'd be easier uh, if you got rejected. It's like the character's getting rejected, which that, by the way, I have so much, <laughs> so much to feel, or so much mm -hmm. relating. Um, but you just, it feels like even watching the video, I took a step away from chaotic life and back into like a really simple, pure, connected time. And it just, it's so lovely. So I'm so happy to have come across you. I always think about like, I, I feel like I'm, I don't know, I'm like an only child. I'm like an awkward theater kid. I'm the person at the party who like just wants to know your deepest secrets. And so having a <laughs> typewriter there, I'm like, listen, let's just create a space where I can ask this. And then we don't have to like talk about the weather or how people know each other. Oh man, you found the secret then. That, there it is. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, well, Brian, to, to start off this podcast, uh, and I want to get so much into all the things that we were just talking about, but before we go any further, would you mind describing the relationship that you have with your body? Yeah, and I love this question. It's one that is, uh, I don't think I've talked about before in an ironic way. And, and I mean, part of that, I think, is just like being male-bodied and male-presenting. It's not sort of often not something that we discuss. Um, I'm also a queer person, and so there's, I think, definitely a lot of uh, more introspection maybe that happens because of that, because there's a, a sense in which, um, like, queer people all in some ways have, have non-normative bodies and are doing non-normative things with them. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, I... I hmm. You know, going going back to the beginning, I was just always the tallest or second tallest kid in class, um, which is a, a fun identity to inhabit. And it meant that I 
uh, only ever got bullied by girls. I never got bullied by boys because there were different codes of engagement and conduct and, you know, the sort of physical aspects of things were important. Mm -hmm. um, and then really got into, uh, like I mentioned, sort of physical theater and this side of self-expression that's very much rooted in the body um, in high school. And had never played sports as a kid. My parents were big hippies. I think my dad equated all like organized sports with the Vietnam War. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I was like, you know, maybe would ride a bike, but there was no push to do the sort of traditional, like masculine sports ball activities. Um, yes. But I, I really came into my body, I think through theater and then again through sexuality where I just, you know, saw sort of athletic bodies and went, ooh, that's, I like that. Um, and was was really fortunate in college and then in young adult life to have friends uh, who were really into bodybuilding and sort of brought me into the gym and showed me what was going on. And so I have this this funny positionality and it's one that I'm, I'm working on integrating more and I, I don't actually too much in um, in either of my first two books, I've got a, a book of poetry called I Sold These Poems, Now I Want Them Back. And I've got a, a book of essays about traveling around the country writing poems for strangers called The Poetry of Strangers, uh, what I learned traveling America with a typewriter. And I'm actually working right now on a collection that's really trying to integrate more of these different sides of me, more of the sexuality, more of the physical, because I, I find it is something that even though my writing practice is really embodied because I'm like on the street, physically present with other people, seeing them, them seeing me as part of the writing, um, it's not something that I, I talk about a lot in my writing or haven't historically. Um, and it's funny because I'll, I'll meet people and I'm, you know, like six foot two and 200 pounds and doing, you know, bodybuilding and martial arts stuff. And then they'll say, what do you do? And I'll say, I'm a poet. And like the um, <laughs> the MMA gym that I go to, it's sort of a, a running joke. Every, literally every class, the instructor's like, write us a poem about it. There's this thing of like, it's, it's just so funny to have this sort of like, you know, big guy sitting on people and getting punched. And they, what does he do for work? Well, he's a poet. Oh my God. <laughs> um, so that's a, that's a bit of the, the body, uh, body identity. Um, I've got my like Tupperware of sort of bodybuilder meal prep chicken, sweet potato and Brussels sprouts in front of me right now, sort of half finished as we're, as we're doing this interview. And I was like, oh, interviews at my mealtime. Gotta, you know, see if I can get some of it in before we start. So that's, yes. I think, a, an element of it as well is that relationship with, with food. Mm. Um, and I've always been a sort of a foodie, but also in pursuing this sort of physical practice, there's a lot of regimentation, there's a lot of control. And in part, as someone who gets really hangry, it's really nice to just have it on autopilot and be like, I'm going to cook all of my food on a Sunday and then I will eat it through the week. And like, I will eat out with friends when that happens. And otherwise, like, I have my meal times. I know when they are, I have my food, it's in the fridge. I will like put it in the microwave, put it on the stove don't need to worry about it. Um, mm. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's some, that's some body talk. Yeah, man. I, I love all of this, especially 
I think I read something in your book when you talked about queerness. Uh, you said, I think you were talking about a different, a critic or something. I can't remember his name, but you said that there's an understanding of what it's like from the outside to look in. And yeah, oh, Wayne, Wayne Kostenbaum is his name. He's this great yeah. queer critical theorist, poet, all the things. Okay, tell me, talk to me more about about that, about like the queerness side of things, because I, man, I felt like that put words to so much that I've just never understood but felt before Mm. about what it's like being a queer person and like the introspection that's more, not more natural, but it's just, it's different. It feels more like survival-y to have to do that. What's your experience like with that? Well, I have to I have to read the quote because I had to find it, um, but I've got it in front of me. Um, okay. The quote is, "Poetry is language that envies a scene it is describing," and mm. I'll, I'll read a little bit about that from the book. This is the poetry of strangers. Uh, so, poetry is language that envies a scene it is describing, says critic Wayne Kostenbaum. Envy goes beyond seeing a person. To envy someone is to want to become them. It's no accident, I think, that Kostenbaum is queer, like me. There's an understanding of what it's like from the outside to look in. In order to write for people, I realize the idea of tolerance falls well short of the mark. I couldn't just refrain from judging my subjects. I had to envy them, to realize how their lives were beautiful in ways mine might never be, and speak to that. My poems use I and you and we interchangeably as pronouns. Um... Yeah. Hmm. Thanks for thanks for bringing that up. Um, Absolutely, it stuck out to me. I think there's something. There's sort of a stereotype, especially with gay men, where you get the sort of like gay twin couples, where they look identical. You know. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something really interesting in that. And even in my kind of emerging understanding of my sexuality, there was a question of like, am I looking at this person because? I mean, it's like all, all of the like fitness Instagram influencers, right? They're like, I'm here for inspiration. I'm giving you inspiration. And I'm like, mm, you're giving us softcore porn. <laughs> and thank you very much. I'm here for it. <laughs> thank you for that. You know, like hats off. Yeah. Um, but I think there, there is that question that, that queer folks especially have of like, do I want that? Do I want to become that? Do I want to, um, you know... Weirdly, the word in my head is like possess that, which equally I think raises weird questions about like sexuality and capitalism and just our context and what it means to be in in relationship with each other in a I don't know a like post uh, post enclosure movement uh, age where sort of everything is defined as as property. Um, and I think one of the things that queerness does is kind of contest that relationship of like if you are with this person, they are your property. Um, and even going back to my childhood, I mean, my like I said, my parents were hippies. They uh, met in Santa Cruz in the 70s and never got married. And I remember kind of asking my dad about it as a kid as I realized, like, oh, my parents are doing something different from all of my friends' parents. And him explaining, you know, very gently to, like, my six-year-old self that marriage was historically the sale of, well... Yeah, I think he put it this way, the, the sale of a woman from her father to her husband, and that they didn't want to participate in that. Um, but I think there, there is the potential within queerness for, for different sorts of arrangements between bodies, and for 
this sort of liminal space and blurred lines of you know what is what is friendship what is sexuality what is support um what is intimacy look like and it's something that even in I mean, the, the I and you and we interchangeably, right? Like in, in poetry, there's ways that that comes out as well. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's, that's my immediate free association around yeah. that quote. Oh, yeah. No, that, that, definitely, that definitely resonates with me. I remember even like growing up, I was so confused when you're talking about you get like the, do I want that or do I want to be that? I just remember not being able to tell us like, do I just want to look like this girl or do I want to make out with this girl? I'm like, it's really hard to tell the difference. And like maybe both. Yeah, maybe (laughs) both. It's confusing. It's confusing. It's definitely something that at least I'd imagine heterosexual couples have a different understanding of because there's not like the, the female male connection that's modeled in all the disney movies and stuff like it's something we're kind of creating on our own right right yeah so tell me more about what it was like growing up with hippie parents that sounds awesome (laughs) i mean it's it's one of those things where it's both i think one of the things i'm doing right now in adulthood is trying to unpack as i'm kind of creating my own path and like as someone in their early 30s I've kind of done the initial 20s like individuation and and like setting out into the world and now I'm like okay what is my cultural conditioning from society which like we all have and we watch the movies and we get the storylines of what's possible Mm -hmm. and what's my cultural conditioning from my parents which was very much kind of anti-establishment um my my favorite story now that my mom is telling my uh dad died a year ago and all of these sort of new stories are coming up and one of the ones that she's telling a lot right now uh is that they um when they met they agreed on a six-week fling they were college students and summer was coming up and so they agreed that they would kind of you know try on a relationship until the summer and didn't expect it to last past then and got to the end of the six weeks and said should we renew that that felt good and just kept renewing their six-week fling for you know 43 years oh my gosh Um, i love that and i love that idea of intentionally being in relationship and and making explicit right Mm -hmm. that you do kind of have the choice at any time and every few months you should evaluate your relationship and you should think about and talk about what's working and what's not working um but it's funny because it's something that i've i've done a little bit in my own conception of relationships and it's only recently hearing my mom talk about this i'm like oh i i didn't come up with this this i literally learned this from my parents and i just (laughs) didn't realize it you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah that makes sense my gosh i I, I grew up with the exact opposite of hippie parents, the very conservative Christian dad who had his own little Bible studies around a table and that whole wow. idea. So, yeah, this sounds just, I feel like I have so many questions. I want to, like, understand what that was like because that, that's just so cool. Like, I, I, like, I'm just now learning over the past maybe three or four years about things even like what you said about how marriage used to be like basically a sale from a father to a husband like stuff like that is still feels fresh and new to me that Mm. 
it just, it blows my mind. It's crazy. And so, so tell me more, when you were growing up, you're saying you, you came into your body more in with theater and bodybuilding. Is that what you were saying? <laughs> yeah, t- totally. Totally. <laughs> oh um, my gosh. Troy Bolton in a way. <laughs> who's that? No. Have you seen High School Musical? Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Zach Efron's character? Is this? Yes. Zach okay, Efron's character. I was about to be like, oh no, we need a pause. <laughs> <laughs> we need a pause. No, am, we need to go back. I am a gay man. I am aware of Zach Efron. Thank you. I would assume. I mean, <laughs> I'm a gay woman and I'm aware of Zach Efron. So. <laughs> Permeating the culture. Oh, bless, yes. bless that child. Oh, um, <laughs> doing, doing good work out there. Yeah, man. Uh, um, <laughs> no, so. I mean, the, the other thing with sort of hippie parents is, like, my dad was vegetarian. Um, my mom wasn't. When he'd go out of town, we would have, like, we would call it meat fest, and we would just eat meat for every meal, but otherwise I grew up completely vegetarian. Um, we didn't have a TV in the household, uh, which meant I, like, read a lot, and I played with Legos a lot, and, you know, took care of, like, fish and lizards and snakes and stuff. Um, and that was, <laughs> that was early childhood, which in, in a funny way was really isolating from being a kid in school because all kids would talk about was the TV shows they were watching. Mm-hmm. And I just didn't have that point of reference. Um, and so I, I drew a lot in part in response to that. Like I didn't, they also, my parents also weren't super keen on like buying me trendy things. So like. I never had Pokemon cards, for instance, so I would draw my own Pokemon cards and, like, try to convince my friends that they were worth something and, like, trade them with them. Oh, wow, that's so cool. <laughs> <laughs> which, was, which was its own moment. Oh, um, yeah. And then, yeah, I mean, the theater and bodybuilding, really, theater was, was sort of middle school, high school. Bodybuilding was college. Um, and, yeah, with, with theater, it was... I. I was like a big video game kid kind of end of elementary middle school and I remember having a moment where I did sort of a a a cost benefit analysis and I was like shall I trade in my virtual friends for real friends it seems like there's like a black box theater where you can go and then you're in plays with people and then you hang out and you talk to each (laughs) other and like you have a structure and it's not all about like movies or like who has the coolest skateboard which like I definitely did not yeah. Um, and then, I mean, I think with with the bodybuilding stuff and with all of the, that kind of physical stuff, because I think my parents were so anti um, kind of traditional masculinity, traditional gender roles, um, I really had to leave home to start exploring that because it just wasn't, you know, they would have sort of loved me and supported me no matter what, but it would have been the equivalent of maybe in, like, a conservative Christian household, like, coming out as gay to be like, Mom, Dad, I want to do bodybuilding. And they'd be like, um, that's weird and upsetting, you know? That's so wild to think about. Wow. Um, and, I, you know, I, I haven't had exactly that conversation with them, but it's funny, you know, even just when it comes to going to the gym or sort of diet stuff, there's just clearly a layer of, like, non-comprehension with Uh that yeah okay okay so so theater theater sounds like it was such an important part of your growing up because it it seems like it gave you like it gave you a place to belong a community kind of a family outside a family thing which everybody needs that's really special that that was that that was there for you like that 
it was ah. it was a beautiful time and especially i think it was during the um bush era no child left behind arts cuts where just pretty much all arts funding for all schools across the country was gutted oh, um God. And I was really fortunate at that time to be growing up in Culver City, and Sony Studios had just moved into Culver City from, I think, Burbank or North Hollywood or something. And they kind of stepped in and bridged that arts funding. And so we actually had this incredible after-school um, arts academy, and we'd get all these like MFA students from UCLA who would come, and we would be their guinea pigs in high school. But it meant that I was doing, uh, you know, Grotowski and Brecht and Beckett and uh, like Buto and Pina Bausch and just all of these things that like you know most high school students are doing like Greece <laughs> um, and I was engaging with really like avant-garde like Eastern European and like East Asian sort of laboratory theater yeah. when I was 15 and, and 16 and it was hugely formative because I think it, it is something that is like closer in some ways to like a meditation practice or a religious practice mm. um, where it's about repetition and it's about embodiment and a lot of that kind of mode of theater rather than you kind of putting on a character is about you physically exhausting yourself to the point where you can't pretend anymore and the thing that you do is just the genuine thing that your body is doing and that that authenticity on stage really comes through um mm. and i think it comes through in the typewriter work in some ways as well where it, it really is kind of a durational art practice where if you are writing poems non-stop for three hours at the end of three hours like you are no longer having ideas right like your body is just doing what your body does and the result of it sometimes is good and sometimes is bad <laughs> but is always um kind of authentic or, or genuine in a way that if you're sitting there sort of sculpting your ideas and thinking, oh, what will someone think about this? And what will someone say about this? You, you know, you're aware that there's an audience, but you also like can't, you physically can't worry too much about them. And you just have to do your best and trust that it will be kind of good enough. Mm. And that's, okay. I think, good training for, for life, right? Like, yeah. that's, that's all we kind of can do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so you're saying, uh, like, the connection between uh, theater or typewriting and embodiment is like vital, almost. I th I definitely think so. I mean, part of part of being on stage is an awareness that people are are looking at you and looking at your kind of presentation, and you're you're creating a presentation deliberately to portray a character, to convey a scene, to create a response. But I, I think about, you know, a, another thing in college was really encountering Judith Butler and the idea of gender as a performance, and that we are all performing all the time in the way that we carry ourselves and the clothing that we wear and all of these things. And, you know, I remember, like, in high school, uh, for instance, <laughs> as, a, as a gay kid, being, like, very conscious of my wrists because I understood that, you know, limp wrists were sort of a tell. And so I was just very, you know, aware of how I was holding my wrists. And I remember a, a friend's younger brother who was like on the baseball team and just had like the loosest wrists. And I just remember envying him because I'm like, he's so comfortable in his kind of in his masculinity and his presentation. Like no one 
A, no one's going to be like, oh, is that kid gay? And B, if they did, he would be like, oh, shut up. <laughs> and like, did did not have that much chutzpah, um, you know, at the time. Oh, gosh. That's but you're, I think I read, you're Jewish, right? <laughs> could, could you tell from the chut in chutzpah? <laughs> yes, and I read something about a Polish Jew, I think your, your grandma or somebody. I am too. Polish Jew, man. <laughs> Polish Jews, we, we get around. <laughs> we do. We might be, we might be related, probably. Yeah, I, that that Ashkenazi link. Yeah, I yes. always say my um, my dad was atheist in the most Jewish way possible, and oh my gosh. my mom described herself as a recovering Catholic. Oh, that's how my mom described herself. Oh, there you go, recovering Catholic. And I actually just met, just well, just found out one of my good friends considers himself. He's Jewish and atheist, and he calls it jatheist. And I'm like, yeah. that works. Just the fact that you can be that in Judaism is amazing. It's that's so nice. Yes, yes. But anyway, I'm sorry to take that turn. Um, a little detour <laughs> to talk about all that stuff. I mean, but uh, talk about embodiment, right? Like there's, I think that, that religion and spirituality and faith practices, but also like lineage and ancestry and, you know, migrations and genocide, like it all, it all fits. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have, did you grow up with like, a good knowledge about being Jewish? Like, did you guys have, like, Jewish practices and stuff uh, growing up as, a, like, a kid, or was it more something you learned about later in life? <laughs> it was one of those things that I think my parents thought was, like, important but couldn't really be ours to do. So we had, like, a neighbor across the street who we'd go over to her house for, like, Rosh Hashanah and Passover and stuff. Um, and it was always very much like, we are participating in this, like, neighbor's rituals. And then at home, we would celebrate christmas and like maybe have like a nice meal on easter and like light the candles on hanukkah when we remembered that makes um, sense yeah that was the vibe yeah yeah that makes sense i grew up uh kind of knowing i was jewish kind of but very very ingrained into christianity and then much later in life i was like okay forget all this because of all these reasons definitely a long story hmm. uh and discovering how Jewish I was by taking one of those ancestry tests, it just felt like this deeply important thing that like connected me to so much and to so much history and just learning about all that. It's, it's really exciting. It's something, I mean, yeah, it's something I never claimed much as a kid. Like I understood that it was part of my ancestry, but I definitely... You know, growing up in West LA, you there's people who are really like practicing Jews, and like I got along well with them and was friends with a bunch of them. But like compared to them and their families, like I was definitely not religious. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And you always, I think, are. You know, the the barometer is sort of the people that you're around. So it's interesting talking to people who grew up as like you know the only Jew in town, and they're <laughs> however Jewish they were, they were Jewish. And for me, I'm like, oh well, uh, I mean a little bit, you know. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh yeah. Yeah. So so talk to me more about the the bodybuilding stuff. How you related that to like coming out to really conservative parents as gay? That is so interesting to me because it just I feel like I feel like you had this opportunity to not have that shoved on you and to kind of figure out what you wanted and whatnot 
and then reached for that just as this genuine desire you had versus being told by a parent, like, this is the way that a male body is supposed to look and act and be. That's really special. I think both not being not being pushed by a parent i mean certainly still in terms of sort of societal uh norms and expectations like i definitely uh i mean a couple of things like one one is just that like that kind of strenuous working out and regimentation i think works really well for my brain and general happiness and that's mm-hmm. really nice to be like oh yeah if i'm stressed or whatever instead of uh like getting drunk i can go to the gym that seems mm-hmm. better you know yeah. um and then as as a as a gay man i think there's you definitely feel the especially here in west hollywood um there's both a, an expectation of kind of having matching a, a a normative body type and also like if you can do that well which like i am lucky at at this moment in my life to be able to and like that will not always be the case but i'm super enjoying it while it is like i i get a bunch of attention and positive affirmation from it and that is uh you know that's nice it's sort of um in in the way that i talk about in in discourses around like white privilege I, i always say white privilege is awesome i wish that everyone could have it and that's sort of how I feel, I think, about most things. And I, I'm, I'm really lucky to sit at an intersection where, um, you know, I'm like a tall, buff, white man, and I have various sort of marginalized identities, but they're all pretty invisible. Yeah. Um, and so I can pass in most rooms and, and am increasingly thinking about what it means to choose not to pass and the sorts of advocacy that I can do through showing up in this body and you know making a stand in spaces that i have access to uh for the folks who aren't in those spaces and and sort of contesting the like well but why why am i in this space and this person not um and at the same time like i have access to those spaces and Mm -hmm. part of that is uh you know accidents of birth and part of that is uh you know going to the gym and learning how to dress in a certain way. That was another thing is my parents, you know, my mom never wore makeup. My parents wore the same jeans and t-shirt as each other. They were sort of twins. My mom had short hair. And uh, (laughs) I I grew up until like late high school. I only ever wore sweatpants because I was like, these are the most comfortable pants. Why would you wear any other pants? And then the answer was, the answer was sort of like, well, if you want to get laid, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. and, uh, yeah, and it's in college. I had a friend who literally took me shopping and was like, "Let me teach you how to dress." Mm-hmm. Um, and again, coming back to sort of Judith Butler, I have a, a friend who's a, um, a, a a witch in Salem, Massachusetts, who's part of a, a big sort of trans witchcraft community there, um, and makes jewelry and talks about it as radical adornment. And I love that idea that what we're doing with um, with any sort of self-expression through clothing, through one of one of the first things that I did when I became West Hollywood Poet Laureate is and I knew the answer. I said, do you have regalia? 
And they said, no, what are you talking about? And I sent them some articles about the importance of regalia for ceremonial roles. And I said, I want a sash. And so I, one of my, my achievements as Poet Laureate has been the adoption of the official Poet Laureate sash, which is somewhere between <laughs> like a beauty queen contestant and a Prussian emperor. Um, and it's just great. Like I, I was at a, a writing conference last month and I wore the sash for a panel and then I ended up wearing it for the entire conference because the response was so powerful to physically mark myself out in space and say, you know, hello, I am, I am the poet laureate of the gaze. <laughs> and just people responded to it in, in the way that I think people do respond to when you are, are doing that kind of physical storytelling is maybe how I would think of it. Okay. That's, that's really special. That's really, really special. I love that. I love that you were able to, able to create that for yourself and make that part of it. I'm going backwards a little bit with this question, but I'm just so curious and I keep wanting to ask it and we keep getting farther away from it. I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to go back. Do it. Um, when you were a kid, what, what were the messages that you received about what it meant to be in a male presenting body? Like, what did that mean to you? Because I, I don't talk to a lot of people who grew up in the way you did. Like, I talked to a lot of people with all the, like, religious trauma and conservative stuff and whatnot. Right. And so I'm really interested in what male and female, like, meant to you growing up. Like, what did you think was normal? Hmm. Um, I remember my mom saying men are assholes, and that was a, a fairly standard thing. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, my dad didn't say that, but had no objections to the general philosophy. <laughs> um, and I don't know, sort of typical, you know, in, in, third in third grade or whatever, I was like, oh, girls, yuck. Um, but I mean, I, I think really where... The, the family stuff comes in for that is, like I said, my parents didn't mark their gender difference through clothing. Um, it was cool, actually. We were looking at some old... My mom, like, worked in corporate when I was little, and we were looking at some old photos of her in, like, a suit with short hair, and she talked about it as execupunk. Um, mm -hmm. And I thought that was so cool that she even had that, that sort of name for it of, like, I'm going to say fuck the system by winning at the system and you know very 80s like second wave feminism um yeah but like kind of kind of cool kind of cool to be oh, in yeah. that lineage um i talk i think i know you found me through uh, some poems published in queer quarterly and i talk in one of those about being second generation queer um <sighs> and like i know that's something you know my my mom was always fairly outspoken and, and verbal about having had like lesbian experiences my godparents are a gay couple um my dad's sister's a lesbian like i really grew up in a lot of queer community um they lived in in san francisco in the 80s my uh photo albums when i was a baby um there's a, a number of photos where they'll be like oh yes that's you know our friend solomon holding you he died of aids mm. um and so that's part of my part of my family history and at the same time, like, I didn't come out, until, like, even to myself until really late. Like, I, I didn't come out to myself until 
college and, and not even fully then and not to my parents until I was kind of in my like early mid 20s in part because I knew it wouldn't be an issue um, and I was like this is silly to have a conversation about my sexuality like I need to like have a serious boyfriend to bring home before I bring it up because otherwise like I'll be like mom dad I like guys and they'll be like that's fine <laughs> um, and right that's nice. So, uh, well, and it was funny too, like my, my godfather, <laughs> um, who's a, a like gay, gay bear librarian in the Castro in San Francisco. I think I was in my like mid or late twenties and he met, I think like second serious boyfriend. And he was like, Oh, maybe you are gay. Like I thought it was just a political statement at first. Oh my God. <laughs> um, that's funny. But yeah, I mean, also, I think I think I absorbed a lot of the sort of standard s- standard gender messaging from the culture in the nineties, mm. um, independent of what my my family was doing. Okay, that's interesting to talk about because it's like you get all this input on how life works and what makes a man a man and a woman a woman from your family, but then there's everything around you, like culture, the media the people in school telling you what they think. And I've always wondered, I mean, I guess this is the nature versus nurture almost kind of conversation, but I've just always wondered like what had the most impact. And I guess it probably varies for everybody, but that's interesting to hear that you still felt those pressures from outside your family. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it was like being kind of being a weird kid and trying to understand like why, why I was weird and I was weird for a bunch of reasons so it took a long time to unpack it and to be like oh like you know what where am I choosing this weirdness and where is this just me not being aware of like the cultural norm Mm. um and I also lived when I was in middle school um my dad was an academic and and did a Fulbright down in Chile in South America and so we lived in Santiago um for when I was in sixth and seventh grade and so I also had this experience, and actually my, my whole elementary school experience in LA, I went to a bilingual school where um, education started all in Spanish um, in kindergarten and then went up to sort of 50-50 English-Spanish by fifth grade. And so um, I, I joke sometimes that I had like the reverse Latino experience where like I had Spanish in school and then English at home. Um, mm. And that was, uh, again, thinking about kind of experiences of, like, belonging and displacement and just language, right? Like, Spanish is a language where all objects are gendered and where there are a a different set of gender norms in Chilean culture um, when I lived in in Chile and in in Mexican and Spanish culture, which I was more kind of exposed to in school uh, in L.A., that's fascinating. Yeah, I, I don't know much about that. That's really interesting. I, I kind of want to look more into that. Well, what would you say the the difference? What what are like what what's like the big difference you think between them and the U.S. when it comes to gender norms? Hmm. I mean, first off, like caveat, not not the authority on this. Um, definitely, yeah. <laughs> definitely a tourist. Um, For sure. But there's you know there's there's a sense of. Uh, yeah, a sense of machismo that's a little bit different. And I think in some ways there's more um, 
more permission for certain like emotionality you know there's maybe uh-huh. more more permission for uh you know romance more permission for anger um mm-hmm. than kind of typical like wasp culture uh in the u.s um and at the same time like yeah the, the standard things you know like a, a lot of homophobia a lot of repression it's a lot of very deeply catholic uh traditions mm. okay okay so so i want to talk more about your time writing poems on the street for people i think that yeah that that is just for those listening go by go by his book it's so fascinating just hearing your reflections on it i wrote down some some little snippets uh from what i was reading at the beginning that really got me thinking and i think when you talked about poetry as a service industry i think you said i had no former credentials and meager publications i didn't make any promise of great literature only that i'd show up and listen well and you talk a lot about that about listening well about how people just they they wanted to be heard they wanted somebody to listen and like that is kind of what that's just what it brought people what was that like for you being that kind of like being on that side of like a service industry of poetry on the street for all these strangers that you just met no i mean i love it like i love um i love having the sense that people will share intimate things with you and will open up to you and that all that people need so often is sort of the permission to do that and that that's something that is really lacking we're we're lacking those spaces a lot in contemporary you know life in the u.s um one of the things i I think about is the idea that even though most people here can read or write like in in brazil and india traditionally you'll have like people on typewriters at like the railway station at the bus station and they're there to write people's letters because people want to send messages and and there's still a fairly high illiteracy rate and so people aren't able to put down in words the things that they need to tell people who are distant and so you would hire you know not a poet but a letter writer at a typewriter to like write your message and send it to your cousin or your uncle or whatever and let them know like when you were coming or what the what the was happening with the you know grandfather's land or whatever it might be and i think in in the us that we have this sort of creative and emotional literacy crisis where it's you can read and write but it's so scary to tell your mom how you feel about her and it's so scary to try to put how you're feeling about the next steps in your career or your move to a new city into words. And that those are things that it can be really helpful to have, you know, to have a, to have a professional assist with. Yeah. That's so interesting. That's so interesting. And that kind of brings me to the next thing that I wanted to bring up is where you said it was poetry that led me to discover a private America, an America where intimacy was possible one person at a time. It kind of, circling back to what you said at the beginning, fast forwarded you past all the small talk about the weather and stuff and like, what are people actually caring about and whatnot? Right. And I mean, I think the <laughs> when, I, when I kind of do that intro to the book, people are then like, well, what did you find out? And the answer is like people kind of all care about the same things. Like what's what's 
revelatory, I think, in some ways of writing poems for thousands of strangers is how many repeats you get. Like everyone's story is is particular in the details, but people all want to talk about their loved ones. They want to talk about, you know, whether that's a, a significant other or a parent or a kid. Um, they want to talk about loss. They want to talk about like hope. They want to talk about their uncertainty and their fear for the future. Um, and they want to talk about their dogs, man. <laughs> and I think it's, it's telling, you know, there's, there's like a little, I think it's like a little Instagram infographic that's, you know, people 50 years ago at 20, you'd get whatever at eight, 20, you'd get married and at 25, you'd have kids and at 30, you'd whatever. And now it's like at 25 or at, at 20 you like get a house plant and at 25 you like get a dog mm -hmm. and this way that I think we um like we we are kind of profoundly lonely and wanting to experience like witnessing and companionship and increasingly are urbanized and living in a, a world that's really expensive and really difficult to bring kids into and renegotiating all sorts of social contracts and boundaries and pets are, are are really important you know to people's to people's mental health to people's embodiment to people's lived experience and i i used to hate writing the dog poems because i'm like how much do i have to say about a dog that i've never met you know <laughs> um and I've kind of come full circle on them to being like, look, if, if this is what's really important in someone's life, that tells me so much about them and about kind of the condition of modernity. Because um, I don't think 50 years ago you would have gotten dog poems. And still, like, there's plenty of places where, like, dogs are work animals, you know? Like, they sleep outside. Yeah. Wow. That's definitely one of the top five things I would have you write about. Across <laughs> yes. street. Just saying, I got three crying dogs in the other room. They're trying to get out. What wow. kind of dogs are they? Uh, so we've got um, a almost 100-pound pit bull. Yes. Who is just, he's a giant teddy bear. And also very, very opinionated about everybody coming over is a burglar, <laughs> no matter what. Mm -hmm. Everyone is not allowed. Uh, and then we have a boxer husky mix with all this other stuff who's just a bowl of anxiety and amazingness. <laughs> and then uh, a, a golden retriever who's turning one this month. And oh my gosh. Oh, baby. I've yeah, I've never met a sassier creature in my life. <laughs> <laughs> so sassy. Oh my, I can't even, I could talk about her for hours just on the sassiness, but. It's so sweet. I love being able to envision it and like all giant dogs, right? Yeah, they're all huge. <laughs> oh, and get this, we were going to try and live in an RV with the three of them. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Me and my partner, we still, that's still a thing, but not full time because three giant dogs and two grown humans in an RV is it's a story. I have a, story. I have a friend who's done like the van life thing for a while and for, for a little bit she and her now wife and their two like mid-sized dogs and cat were all living in a converted van traveling around the country. Oh wow. <laughs> Just That's can't even imagine. than an RV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Props to, props to your friend. That's very cool. Right. That, that is a hard and incredible thing to be able to do. So. <laughs> Good for them, man. I have I have a couple more questions for you, if that's okay. Yeah, go for it. Um, so the question that 
the question that you ask people is, what do you need a poem about, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so say you're, when you started doing this, you were 22, you said? Yeah. Okay, so say you're 22, walking down the street, West Hollywood, just hanging out, maybe grabbing a coffee and a croissant somewhere, um, getting fancy. And you saw, you saw someone like you asking people, what do you need a poem about? Do you know what you would say? Hmm. <laughs> is it bad that my first thought is like, I would probably judge them. <laughs> yeah. And um, then ask for a dog poem. Yeah. There were, I mean, there were so many like fun, even around the time that I started, I think there was like an image that went viral of a typewriter poet in, in New York that was just like peak hipster, you know? Oh gosh, yeah. Millennial sitting in park with typewriter. <laughs> what does this generation think it's doing? What an image. Um... What would I have asked for a poem about at 22? Um, man, I, yeah, it's a, it's a decade later. I'm trying to put myself in like that, that kid's shoes. Um, I think maybe, yeah, this, this feels maybe right. I think I want, would have wanted a poem about artistic fulfillment. I was, I was working at the time as a grant writer and sort of had graduated college in the midst of the Great Recession and was really, you know, it took me like almost a year to kind of get my first job. And I did a ton of exploitative unpaid internships and was like, had the privilege of having parents who lived in LA where I could live there rent free until I actually got work that paid enough to move out. Um, but there was such a sense at that time of not knowing where life would take me and the world kind of having changed and money being very real and very difficult. Um, and I, I grew up, you know, with both of my parents working in a, in a pretty comfortable sort of middle-class home. Um, and was, you know, they put money aside for college. Like I was so lucky in, in all the ways and then kind of striking out on my own and, and knowing that I had this desire to, uh, to create and to sort of have this uh, have this voice, and at the same time, it really being a black box and not having anyone in my family who was a, a professional artist or or uh, having a roadmap to follow. I think that might have been the the poem topic. Mm. Okay, how, and how, how do you think how do you think that would be different from now? Now today, you're walking down the street and you see the same kid. What would you need a poem about today? Hmm. I like the I like the emphasis on today, I'll say first of all, and that's one thing that I always really emphasize is like it doesn't have to be like the big thing of your life. It can literally just be like this morning, what are you thinking about, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, Absolutely. I think right now the the meditation is on um on home, what it looks like to build a home, what it looks like to be home. Um, I, I'm thinking a lot in this moment. And, and part of it has to do with, with having this, you know, laureateship and, and really having a deep interaction with place through that and thinking about, well, what's, what's the sort of life that I want to construct for myself now that I'm a little more settled and also kind of understanding that the work I'm doing now, you know, in, in in my 20s, I was breezing around a little bit more. And now I'm like, okay, like this is a time to 
like lay some foundations, where do I want to lay those foundations and what do I want that to look like? Okay, that that's very that's very cool. Home has been like the topic in my head for years because it's just, I mean, especially for someone like you who's done as much traveling as you said you did in your twenties and stuff. It's such a concept to meditate on in itself. Like, what does home mean? That's very cool. Man, okay, Brian, I have I have one question left for you, and it's Let's incredibly it. important. So important. Uh, would you rather? <laughs> <laughs> would you rather have aloe like the aloe plant for hair and it changes colors every day you have to water it so you don't wash it you just take care of it like you would take care of like an aloe Aww, plant I and love that. You, yeah you get the benefits from aloe like it's good for your it's good for your skin and whatever aloe is good for i'm not a crazy plant it's also knowledge sticky, person though yeah it's sticky and people find it interesting you get looked at weird sometimes but other people look at you like wow i want to be your best friend because you have aloe for hair how many people can say they have a best friend <laughs> aloe for hair that's what i would say or or would you rather huh, would you rather have a side hustle so you still have your regular job, but then you have a side hustle selling little mini flashlights to parakeets. But the thing is, you have to teach them how to use the flashlight. So you've, let's just say this specific kind of flashlight you've created as like, there's like a little, a little notch that you can hook it onto the parakeet's foot and then they could take it off and they could turn it on and it's just for them and you speak their language and you understand them. The success of this side hustle is very inconsistent because how many parakeets really need flashlights? I don't know. But it's something that you do and you're proud of it. Oh, man. I like, I want both of these, first of all. <laughs> um, I would not mind having either of those. I was going with aloe hair until you said I could talk to parakeets and like mm. the success of the side hustle like it's a side hustle like and also sure. parakeets need flashlights they're diurnal they can't see in the dark what are you doing parakeets you want food after you want a midnight snack come get your flashlight <laughs> um I feel like I could I could make that that spin and uh yeah, I just have really fond memories of, like, going to the San Diego Zoo as a kid, and they, like, give you a little cup of whatever sugar water, and parakeets just come and land all over you. And I had a really visceral experience when you told that uh, scenario <laughs> of that and how cool it was. And so I'm going with number two. That makes sense. Because you know what? The same way people can say, my best friend has aloe for hair, they can say, my best friend has a side hustle selling flashlights for parakeets to parakeets while communicating with them. I don't think people would even be aware of that. They'd just be like, my best friend is constantly surrounded by and, and immersing himself in parakeet culture. <laughs> parakeet culture. Okay. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to be... I'm going to be your partner in that side hustle. Yes, let's do it. We can start our own business. No one will see us coming. Oh, my goodness. Where are the parakeets? I'll make them up. Oh. oh, man. Well, Brian, this was such a pleasure getting to talk to you. I am so grateful that I came across you on the internet. I, I'm i just so into your work and what you're doing. Can I ask, what, what are you currently working on right now? Or are you mainly doing, uh, you said that you 
uh, are right now for hire for like corporate events and etc. Yeah, so I um, post post pandemic think well, you know, at at this open stage of the pandemic, let me not say post. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> um, Rent Poet is is back open for business, and I'm you know back to doing lots of of corporate events and weddings and that kind of stuff. And so I always say Poet for Hire by everyone. Um, so feel free to reach out. Uh, I'm at Rent Poet on most socials and rentpoet.com um, for that. I also uh, this June am uh, bringing Pride Poets back. So this is the um, LGBTQ plus poetry group that I work with the city of West Hollywood on where we go to pride parades and uh, write poems for the public. And this year, West Hollywood Pride is June uh, 4th and 5th. So we'll be at the um, festival for that. And then on June 11th, we're actually reopening the hotline. And so folks can call into the hotline on June 11th only um, and get a custom poem written by a queer poet. And uh, I can give you the, the number for that for the show notes if you want. And actually, I'd love yeah. to maybe close out by reading a poem from the hotline from last year if you're open to it. Let's do it. That sounds perfect. Yay. So this uh, was a caller from Texas named Joe who talked about the kind of weight of being an elder queer and a community organizer uh, in a, a state that is hostile to queer folks. And... Um, I think in, in a lot of ways, it's it's a poem about embodiment and a poem about that identity. Mm-hmm. And it's called, it's a, the title is a quote from something that Joe said, which was San Antonio somewhere on Twitter, which I think so accurately represents so much of our lived experience. Specific place, <laughs> somewhere on Twitter. And the, <laughs> the, poem, the poem goes like this. All the Selena drag queens are good, even when they're bad. My friends are queer. Our artists are enveloping. They stamp me and send me postmarked everywhere from this state where our governor is trying to destroy us. Block by block, is it safe? For this body, for these bodies. The opposite of a gun is the dancing butch on the corner with her arms full of waters. We make our vows in tank tops. Swear on every frightened, sweaty teenager an oath to protect. On every gender-fucking, low-rent queer strung out on selfhood an oath to protect. On every Selena drag queen, every belt buckle and soft neck, every RuPaul meme, every mental breakdown, every day, every time, I wake up in this body and put on the whole world. Oh, wow. And that was just written just during a hotline, just real quick. That was on a, on a phone call in about five minutes. Oh, my gosh. That is insane. <laughs> that is so insane. You I, are extremely talented, Brian. Thank you. I always think the person who's calling or the person who's asking for the poem is, is the one who writes it. We're just writing it down. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That makes... That makes sense. That reminds me of so many things my therapist has said to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, well, well, Brian, how, 
how can people find you on the internet or get in touch? I know you, I think you mentioned your Instagram earlier, but just real quick again, what are, what are the places to go? Totally. The great thing about having a, a weird hyphenated last name is if you search Brian, Sonia, S-O-N-I-A dash Wallace, W-A-L-L-A-C-E, I will pop up. Um, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, etc. at RentPoet, R-E-N-T Poet. Um, and uh, com, rentpoet.com. Okay. Awesome, Brian. Well, thank you so much for your time and for what you're doing for people everywhere. I'm super excited to spread the word about you and read more of your work. Thank you, Jackie. Thanks for making this space and for, for creating this dialogue. It means a lot. Absolutely. We'll see you next time I'm in LA with our flashlight business. Parakeets. <laughs> I'll gather the parakeets for your arrival. All right. I'll get the flashlights. We're ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'll see you later, Brian. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Unity Project podcast. If you enjoyed and want to hear more, please do subscribe to this podcast. Share it with your friends. Share it with your mom. Share it with your dog. All the people and animals, share this with them. And go ahead and follow me on Instagram at JackieG.TV to keep up with updates. If you want to support this podcast and get more involved in it, then go to Patreon.com slash JackieGTV. Uh, All these links will be in the description box below. I'll see you next time.